But believe it or not, we are done with the Sermon on the Mount. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to come down off of the mountain and we get to see him doing things that only Jesus can do. This passage is, is meant for us to go, wow, Jesus is amazing. And so with that in mind, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Uh, you can find that on page number 1507. Hear the word of the Lord. When he came down from the mountainside, a large crowd followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause our hearts to be open to who Jesus is, that we would understand these words, that we would be moved and drawn to your son and his glory and his greatness and his willingness to make us whole. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hold on, my pages are out of order here. Okay. So in John chapter 9, we read about this story where uh, 
Jesus and his disciples come across a man, and we're told there in John 9 that he was born blind. So his disciples ask him, uh, betraying what they really believe about this situation, they say, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus responds by saying, well, no one sinned. There was no specific sin directly related to his blindness. But he was born blind, Jesus says, so that the works of God would be displayed in him. So that tells us two things. One, it tells us that that not all suffering that we experience in this life is a direct result of a specific sin, which is encouraging. But it also tells us that no suffering is meaningless. That God intends to display his work in it. What, What great hope for sufferers. For the past several months, we've worked through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been focusing on personal sin and how our personal sin wrecks our relationship with God and with other people and how we're saved from our guilt by simply repenting and believing the good news of the kingdom. But when Adam sinned, we didn't just become sinners. Like the blind man in John 9, we became sufferers in a fallen world. You see, there's more wrong with this world than just us. We live in a world full of sickness and disease and tragedy and accidents and other sinners who hurt us and harm us, sometimes because they're evil, other times because they're careless. And so it's true that we're all sinners, alienated from God because of our sin. But guess what? We're also sufferers, alienated from creation, this this planet, and and even our own bodies. We're sufferers because we're alienated from each other. And a first century Jew thought all suffering was because of someone's sin. Everything that happened to you, you deserved, they thought. If you suffered, it was punishment or discipline, which is why Jesus' disciples ask him, you know, with the, the blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents? But what's interesting is our society has fallen off the horse on the other side. We actually don't think anybody should suffer and, and that anybody's ever responsible for their own suffering. We either think it's random or unfortunate, but most of the time we blame some societal structure. We say it's the, it's the capitalists or the Marxists, right? We say it's the, uh, it's the tree huggers or it's the climate change deniers. We want to blame somebody. And even somebody who does something really evil, we tend to want to say, well, it's his parents. Look how he was brought up. Or look at the societal structures that formed and shaped him. Do you see how we're taking away responsibility from people? So Jesus' crowd, his society, would would heap responsibility all on everybody, and we we don't put any responsibility on on anybody. 
But the Bible has a balanced view, right? The Bible says you're a sinner and a sufferer. The Bible says you're responsible and you're vulnerable. To some degree or another, you're a perpetrator and a victim. Both things are true. So in our passage today, we see Jesus come down from the mountain. And he comes and he meets us in our suffering. We see that the kingdom of heaven isn't just a place where our sins are forgiven and our hearts are made new. It's a place where Jesus is making all things new. So our outline is very simple this morning. We're going to follow the outline on the passage. Uh, First, we're going to look at a leper. And then we're going to look at a centurion. And then all the sick. So first we meet a leper. We're not told how he became a leper. We're not told who's responsible for him being a leper. He's he's just a leper. And of course he's a sinner. But we meet him as a sufferer in a fallen world. And he comes up to Jesus and we're told a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. And so when he comes up and he kneels before him and calls him Lord, right, this could be as simple as a formal address where he comes and gets down on one knee and calls him sir. That's one way of looking at it. And those words could be translated in that way. Or... He could be coming up and falling down before him and calling him the Lord and worshiping him. And notice his humility. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. See, he knows Jesus can do it. That's not the question. And so regardless of whether Jesus chooses to take away his suffering, somehow this man knows that Jesus is his only hope and this is faith. This is faith. And then Jesus reached out and touched him. And just like that, with a touch from Jesus, immediately he is clean. So if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam first sinned, and the curse, the curse that Adam receives is that the, the ground is cursed. God says, cursed be the ground because of you. And then if we fast forward to Romans 8, Paul unpacks a little bit of what that means for us. He says this, he says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So all creation is now in this this state of frustration. It's in bondage to decay. Which means that earthquakes and drought and storms are all a result of a creation that is decaying and in bondage. Okay, So is rot and maggots and death. And because our bodies are made out of the dust of the ground that was cursed, we, we actually experience the curse in our bodies. And so with a touch, Jesus takes away the effects of the curse 
and this man's body right here. Because Jesus is making all things new. So leprosy. Uh, Leprosy is a generic term, kind of a catch-all term for any kind of skin trouble. Uh, It could be as simple as pimples on somebody's face, all the way to actual, terrible, contagious leprosy that literally causes your appendages and your uh, limbs to rot and fall off. And we're not told what kind of leprosy this man has, but, but given his, the way he approaches Jesus, it, it's probably closer to the terrible kind. And in Israel, all lepers were considered unclean in Jewish religion. If they went outside in public, they had to go around shouting, unclean, unclean, so that people would know to stay away from them because people feared even touching a leper because it made you unclean in the eyes of Jewish religion. But it was also contagious and having leprosy was literally a death sentence, but probably even worse, it placed you socially on the outside. You were a total total marginalized human being. You had to go and live in a leper colony with other lepers. The closest thing in our society to this is probably the homeless community. Living on the streets, struggling with addiction and mental health, wearing ragged clothes and not taking showers, living in homeless colonies. We can all picture that in our minds. And the more mentally unstable a homeless person seems, the more you wouldn't want to touch them. In fact, if they approach you, there's this impulse, at least in me, to to back up. Can you imagine how that would feel? To always have people pulling away from you if you got near them. To, To not being able to remember the last time you felt the touch of another human being to be considered permanently unclean by everyone you come in contact with, even your own family and friends and everyone you know and love. And so not only is Jesus willing to make him unclean, but he reaches out his hand and he touches him to do it. And when Jesus touches him, Jesus doesn't become unclean. He makes him clean and he heals him. And not only that, Not only is his body restored, but Jesus restores him to the community. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So quick note, uh, Jesus doesn't want him to tell anyone. This is confusing when we read this, um, but really Jesus is here to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And the more people that find out that he's a miracle worker, the more unbelievers who just want Jesus to give them something are going to show up and and, and crowd in and around him. Which, as you read the Gospels, it doesn't seem like Jesus was able to avoid that. Although, he's trying. But then he tells him to show himself to the priest, because this was the way back in. Jesus restored him physically, but he has to keep the law to be restored to his friends and his family and his community. Jesus is for the law. The law is good. It is sweeter than the honeycomb. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. But at this point, all those laws are still in place because Jesus has not died on the cross and shed his blood to cleanse them 
right? And so this cleansing that he has to give to the priest is, is pointing forward to what Jesus will do on the cross. And Jesus doesn't want the crowds to know, but he does want the priests to know. He wants the priest to have to certify the miracle and then welcome this man lawfully back into the community. So, because of the fall, we have sickness and disease, and with a touch, Jesus restores fallen creation. Because of the fall, we reject each other. We, we put the awkward and the different and the weak and the marginalized and whoever we think is unclean, we put them on the outside looking in. But with a touch, Jesus brings this man in and restores him to the community. And we all know how this feels. Uh, my wife and I got COVID in December of 2020 and we felt unclean. We, we, we had this feeling of being the, the pariahs that no one wanted to, to, to touch, especially Anne's family came and they like stood outside the window and like waved to us like we were huddled in our little, you know, leper colony inside the house. We, we know how this feels if, if we've ever had children who got lice. We know how it feels to be left out, ignored, rejected, or told we don't belong here. This is why teenagers hate getting pimples on their face. But Jesus doesn't care about our awkwardness or our pimples. He's willing to make us clean. He's willing to restore us and make us whole and welcome us into the kingdom. If only we're bold enough to come to him in faith and say, if you are willing, you can make me clean. But at least the leper was a Jew. The only thing keeping him on the outside was disease, but what about someone who's from the wrong race? Next story, we meet a centurion. So a centurion uh, would have been a Gentile for sure. Uh, the commentators are split on whether or not this is actually a Roman soldier or whether or not uh, this is a local foreigner from Lebanon or Syria. Uh, either way, uh, he was under the command of either a, a Roman commander or Herod Antipas, which was the puppet king that was put on the throne by, uh, by Rome. And so regardless, we're dealing with a Gentile who is commanding troops that are keeping Jews in line. Definitely not a welcomed member of the community. And we're told this, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said. And again, this could be as simple as the centurion coming up and saying, Sir, or, and my intuition is, it's probably more this, given everything that the centurion's about to say to him, this is the centurion somehow knowing that Jesus is the Lord. And he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? See, a Jew who had the misfortune of contracting leprosy, was an outsider, but a Gentile centurion was even more of an outsider. He was born outside of Israel. He had no hope of all the promises that God had given to Israel. And this man probably knew that. 
And so here Matthew introduces an interesting theme that we're going to see again in the book of Matthew. So later in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to send the disciples out to go and to uh, proclaim the gospel and to heal and to cast out demons. And Jesus says this to them. He says, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And then later a Gentile woman wants Jesus to heal his daughter. And she, he says this to her. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So, so knowing these passages are coming, Jesus asks the centurion, shall I come and heal him? And, it, and it's almost like he's saying to him, don't you know that I have only come for the lost sheep of Israel? But the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say the word. I say say to my servant, do this and he does it. Now it's one thing to be a miracle worker. It's another thing to be able to heal someone who you don't know, who is in a place that you don't know. And so just think about what this centurion must know and must believe about Jesus. He knows First of all, that he is unworthy to have Jesus come under his roof, which could be because he knows he's a Gentile and he's considered unclean by Jews. Or, and quite likely also at least, because he's a sinner. And that he doesn't deserve Jesus' mercy. However, even though he knows he doesn't deserve it, he's still bold enough to ask for it anyway. Because somehow he knows that Jesus is the kind of person who will be merciful to him. And he knows that Jesus has godlike power and authority to speak a word from a distance and heal his servant. Because this man knows what it's like to have people under authority. So, so he speaks to the soldiers that are under him and they do exactly what he said. And so Jesus, he knows, can speak to creation. (laughs) Jesus can speak to nature from anywhere in the world, and it will do exactly what he says. That's that's God-like power. That's God-like authority that this man knows Jesus has. And then we read, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So these two themes in Matthew begin to kind of come together here. Right? So there's the, the theme where Jesus only came to the lost sheep of Israel. That, that's being introduced here. But there's also the theme that we already know about, where Gentiles are invited in. If we go all the way back to Jesus' genealogy, Rahab and Ruth, Gentile women, are highlighted. The, the first people who come and recognize Jesus as king and worship him are these wise men from the east, also pagan Gentiles. The the book of Matthew we know is gonna end with Jesus sending us out to make disciples of all nations. And now here in our passage, Jesus says, many from the east and the west will come and take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
And a Jew wouldn't even let a Gentile enter their house, let alone to sit down and have a meal with them. And here Jesus is saying, all these Gentiles from the east and the west are going to come and they're going to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And not only that, but the subjects of the kingdom, which is a reference to the Jews, they're going to be thrown outside. And it's not like all Jews are being thrown out. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there. This would have sounded absurd to a Jew. And later the Apostle Paul will explain to us why this happens. He writes, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. You see, Jews, they thought the kingdom was theirs as a birthright. They thought the kingdom was theirs because God had given them the law. But the kingdom has always been for those who look to Jesus alone for forgiveness and healing and hope. And we can be guilty of this now, being born into the church, being baptized into the church. We we can begin to think that our association, our affiliation with the Christian community is what makes us part of the kingdom of heaven. And on one hand, it does. But only those with true faith who look to Jesus for forgiveness and healing and hope are in the kingdom. The Jews were trusting in their righteousness, their law-keeping, and their ethnic purity as Jews instead of trusting in Jesus alone. But the centurion has faith. In fact, we're told he has more faith than anyone in Israel because he recognizes Jesus for who he really is. He is the Messiah. He is Israel's hope and consolation. So here's the question. So if the kingdom of heaven is open to the Gentiles, why does it seem like Jesus is hesitant to come to this man's house? And why will he later say that he came only for the lost sheep of Israel? Here's why. Salvation is from the Jews. It's not like Jesus ends the kingdom with the Jews and starts a whole new kingdom with the Gentiles, as one kind of theology would suggest. No, that's not what happens. He welcomes Gentiles into the only kingdom there has ever been by faith. He throws out the subjects of the kingdom because they don't believe But the kingdom itself never changes. Paul in Romans 11 gives a picture of this and he uses an olive tree. And he says that the natural branches, which are the Jews, the subjects of the kingdom, they are cut off. And the unnatural branches, which are the Gentiles, are grafted in. So the kingdom is the same. And Jesus must fulfill the law given to Israel so that he can save the world. And so it's good that he came for the lost sheep of Israel, not because he only intends to save Israel, but because through keeping the promises he made to Israel and by fulfilling the prophecies God made to Israel, that's how he makes it possible to welcome in anyone and everyone from everywhere into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. So again, we see Jesus reversing the curse. He's healing this man's servant, but he's also reversing the curse by healing the conflict that we have between each other. Jesus is making it clear that all people, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, to use Paul's language, are welcomed into the kingdom 
by faith. Where our tribal and ethnic and political and social and economic divisions all become secondary right, to our shared identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Finally, Jesus heals all the sick. So right after the story with the centurion, we read this. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's, mother, Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. I love this story. First of all, she's a woman, uh, which she would have been still part of Israel, but she still would have been a second-class citizen in that society. And Jesus is attentive enough to her to heal her, even though she doesn't ask him to. No one asks him to. And then he does it by touching her hand. It's almost like he brushes by her and touches her hand, and she is healed. Because he is merciful. And everywhere he goes and everything he does and says speaks to him, being the one who is making all things new. Forgiving sin, healing diseases, and creating a community of faith where everyone from east and west is invited to enter and through faith be a part of the kingdom. And then notice she responds by immediately getting up and serving him. This is, this is how we respond to the healing touch of Jesus. And then after healing Peter's mother-in-law, our passage closes with these words. It says, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So now he's just, he's just healing everyone. He drives out evil spirits with a word. He heals all the sick. He's at Peter's house in Capernaum and every sick person they can get to him is healed. Uh, When Mark tells the story, he says this, he says, the whole town gathered at the door. And you can just imagine the the, uh, suffocating presence of every person in the town wanting something from Jesus. And yet he drove out the spirits with the word and he heals all the sick. I I think we especially if you've grown up in the church and you're familiar with these stories, we can, we can sort of take this for granted, what's happening here. We don't really use the label demon possession much in our society, but if you go to a mental hospital, it's fascinating to me that a lot of the people there are obsessed with Jesus and demons. And so I don't know, honestly, where you draw the line between demon possession and what we would call mental illness, but to help us get the idea of what Jesus is doing here, I think we can think of demon possession or mental illness as just categories that describe the same experience. Um, We've seen enough movies that we can all picture what a mental hospital would look like. I remember when my sister-in-law was going through nursing school and she did her uh, clinicals, uh, she had to go to a prison mental hospital. And she would tell us the stories about what happened there, and it sounded like one of the scariest places to be on earth. And so, so to get the idea of what's happening here and how amazing it is, try to picture Jesus walking through the halls of a mental hospital and speaking a word to everybody in every room, and all of a sudden, immediately, they're in their right mind. Right, they go from jumping down, up and down and holding stuff and beating their heads against things, and, and all of a sudden, in an instant. Can you imagine what the doctors would think? This is what's happening here. 
Imagine people with cancer and multiple sclerosis and heart disease and diabetes and COPD and Alzheimer's all trying to get into this this room and this home and Jesus healing every single one of them. He has the power to undo the brokenness that sin has unleashed on our world with a word or a touch. This is also how we know that supposed uh, faith healers are all fakers because they don't do this. I don't know of one story in the world where this is happening. Many of us here have suffered or are suffering right now with pain and sickness. We long for healing for ourselves or for someone we love. We long to be restored. We pray for healing and comfort. And sometimes people we know get well. Sometimes we get well and we praise God for that. But there's usually a struggle. There's usually a process full of waiting and rehab and setbacks. But when Jesus heals someone, it happens in a moment. In fact, Matthew emphasizes that with his mother-in-law, with Peter's mother-in-law, right? In a moment, immediately, she's up and serving. So here's the question. What does all this mean for us now? They're not all supposed to be up there right now. That's okay. First of all, let me point out that everyone Jesus healed in these stories eventually got sick and died. Everyone that Jesus heals in these stories eventually got sick and died. So hope for healing this side of heaven is not the main idea in this passage. So whatever the point is of these healings, they were not permanent. They didn't remove these people from life as sinners in a fallen world. The ultimate hope of healing could not be of individual, personal, earthly healing. This leper was restored to his community, but guess what? He probably still suffered with conflict and alienation, being left out or (laughs) leaving other people out. The centurion was welcomed into the kingdom of heaven by faith, but he was still a Gentile in a Jewish world. That conflict still rages. And even inside the church, which is the kingdom made visible on earth, we still divide up by tribe. Very rarely do we see a multi-ethnic church that represents everyone on the social, political, and economic divide. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to make that better. But it was like this when Jesus was here. It's been like this for the last 2,000 years. And honestly, it's probably going to be like this until Jesus returns. And so how does this passage speak to us today in a world full of ongoing sickness, sorrow, and conflict where we long to experience not only forgiveness of our sins, but healing of our diseases and reconciliation of our relationships, okay? So first, just like for those actually who witnessed Jesus' miracles, these miracles prove that Jesus is who he says he is. Only God could heal someone from a distance. Only God can take away leprosy with a touch without becoming unclean himself. And the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be a healer. And so we can know Jesus is who he says he is because he fulfilled those prophecies and his divine power was on display in his miracles, which means we can also believe that he will save us from our sins. 
which is what he came to do. If we go back to Matthew 121. Second, it tells us that Jesus doesn't just care about our sinfulness, that he cares about our suffering. He came to save us from our sins, and one of the results of that salvation is hope for a time when all the effects of sin will be fully and finally removed. When we sin and fall short, we look to Jesus for forgiveness and grace. And when we suffer, whether it's suffering that we bring on from our own actions, or something that somebody else did, or just because we live in a fallen world, we can know that Jesus cares, that he is with us, that he is our healer, and that he has a purpose for it. Third, it's a reminder of just how awful sin is. And I think this is the one that we don't consider enough. All of our suffering in this world, all the suffering we see other people endure, is a result of sin. We started out talking about the blind man in John 9 where Jesus' disciples asked, who sinned that caused this man to be born blind? And Jesus said, no one. His blindness wasn't tied to any one specific sin, but he was born blind because his body is made from the dust of the ground and God cursed the ground in the fall. And so we can get caught up in our suffering or someone else's suffering, trying to fix it or trying to find somebody to blame. But one thing it seems that our world struggles with now is to accept that there might not ever be a reason why. We might not ever be able to fix it. And sometimes there's no one to blame. But we have to remember that all suffering in this world is a reminder of just how terrible sin really is because sin is what unleashed all this suffering in our world. So if we hate suffering, we should hate sin, starting with our own. But we tend to play with sin and coddle it and justify it and act like our lying, our lusting, and our lack of love for God and our neighbor is totally disconnected from the suffering of the world, but it's not. Sure, one specific sin may not be directly connected to one specific form of suffering, But the suffering in this world is a mirror screaming to us how terrible sin is. And finally, Jesus became the ultimate victim of human sin and he was the only truly innocent sufferer. See, the truth is when we suffer, we're not getting more than we deserve. The final verse of our passage There's a quote from Isaiah 53, 4. Matthew writes, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Well, how did he do that? Well, let's read a few more verses in Isaiah to find out. Isaiah says, He was despised and rejected by mankind. So he took on our alienation that we have with each other. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, like a leper, like a Gentile. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, and by doing that, he bore the weight of all the suffering our sin has unleashed on this world, including the wrath of God. And when he walked the earth, we got a glimpse of the power he has to make all things new, and he will, because he is our hope. And so let us look to him in all of our sin and all of our suffering, knowing that he is willing to make us clean and trusting that he is displaying his work in us no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for a complete Savior. We're thankful that not only are our sins forgiven, but that we have a Savior who knows our suffering and intends to rescue us from it. That one day we will be completely whole in the kingdom. One day there will be no more crying or pain. In the meantime, Father, we know that we have a God who cares about it, who sent his son to experience the worst of it, and who saves us from it. Help us always keep our gaze fixed on him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.